1: You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the great robot wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold, with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello everybody, this is a special report edition of UCI Conversations, I'm your host Kevin Bossenmeyer. And the reason that it is a special report is because my guest today is arguably the top UCI public health expert on pandemics, Professor Andrew Neumer. His research straddles the biological and social domains to get a clearer understanding of pandemic patterns. He studied at some of the top universities in the world, including UC Berkeley, Harvard, and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he is an expert on the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. He was on this show twice in March, just as COVID-19 exploded for the first time in the USA, and obviously the rest is history, and it is not over yet. The pandemic continues to rage. The ICU units in Orange County, as well as California and throughout the world, are filled to capacity and he's here to help us be aware of what we need to continue to be aware of and learn about, and he's here to help. So welcome, Professor Neumer. Again, thank you for being with us. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for having me on KUCI. Glad to be back. Super. Professor, I remember the last time you were here on the show, you made it a point to declare the date of the interview was being recorded. So KUCI listeners, please note today's interview is taking place on Friday, December 18th, 2020. Professor, what's the most important message that you want people to hear from you today? So often things get muddled as we talk about this, that, and the other
0: thing, and there's so many controversies. Can you distill it down at this point? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you remind me of the fact the last time I was on your show, the last two times I was on your show, that I I emphasized the date of recording because it was such a fluid situation back then. And I wanted to make sure that your listeners understood that you know, if, if the show was being broadcast a few days later, that things might have changed. You know, it's still a fluid situation, of course, but actually I'd forgotten about those reminders because, I mean, I, I feel like we're, we are stuck in a little bit of a rut now and it's sort of much the same day after day. And I, and, and I feel like nothing I say today will be invalidated a few days later. We're kind of in an equilibrium, but a bad equilibrium of every day there's more people hospitalized with COVID-19. Every, every day the ICUs have more people in them. We've set records on both of those statistics every day for a week now. And this is being recorded on the 18th of December, 2020. But we're in the winter phase. We're in the phase where we kind of have a generalized COVID epidemic in Orange County. You know, prevalence um, maybe as high as 2%. So it's just a really serious situation now. And it's going to be, you know, it's it's hard to call when the peak is going to be. You can't just look at a curve and you know, say when it's going to crest. I mean, if you could, then there would be a lot of people uh, getting rich on the stock market. And in fact, a lot of people try to do that with the stock market data, but uh, somewhat famously, you know, fail. And so, it, you know, we can, we can make some models that will, mathematical models that will help us predict when the peak is going to happen. But these models don't have an excellent track record in terms of the very micro details you know, you can't just put in a bunch of data until, and I can tell your listeners, you know, it'll be peaking a week from today. So we're in a very dangerous phase of the epidemic. And I mean, you know, there's some excellent news on the horizon in the form of the, the vaccine. And I'm sure you'll have some more specific questions about that. But for the time being, you know, right now, I'm not optimistic about where we are, about what this weekend will bring, about what next week will bring. And in terms of, Hospital capacity in terms of the human capital of people who work in the hospital, the doctors, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, other medical technicians. These people have to keep managing the flow of patients for weeks out, and they have been doing so for weeks. And, and you know, I hope that they can keep doing so and, and doing so safely. So there's a lot of moving parts in the pandemic as as there have been, uh, but we're in a d- distinctly different phased and the two other times I had the pleasure to be on your show, Kevin.
1: Yes. I will say, you know, at Thanksgiving time when, you know, there was a lot of warning and I was very disappointed to see that it was predicted that travel was down by 14%. To be honest, I was shocked. 14%. That, that didn't seem to be indicative of, of how serious this is and it seems to be playing out now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I looked at some TSA data on passenger screenings comparing uh, twenty nineteen and twenty twenty, and and those were down quite a bit year on year. Uh, more than fourteen percent, they were mm. down about about half. But mm. uh, so that's some good news. Uh, okay. th- there's uh, there is some some bad news. There's kind of two strands of bad news. The, the first is that even though they were down from last year quite a bit, they were increased from the previous weeks in November, which is obviously to be expected, but so it's not like people were canceling flights left, right, and center. I mean, there was an increase at Thanksgiving of passengers screened by TSA. The other uh, strand of bad news is that, and this is somewhat anecdotal, I have to have to say, but that, and I, because I don't have data from Caltrans or other um, agencies, but that people drove instead of flew. Mm. And the, and uh, I I guess there is some data that the the, the, uh, state of Washington health, uh, transportation, pardon me, uh, not health, uh, the transportation department released a, a show that there were increases in road travel, but I don't have those data like right at my fingertips. But the point is there were multi-household gatherings at Thanksgiving. And, and, um, of course Thanksgiving's a, w- a wonderful holiday and, uh, you know, it's a holiday that's not associated with any religious faith. So people from all, everyone in society can, can join in. And it's, that's part of what makes it so wonderful. And, uh, and so multi-family, you know, multi-household gatherings are are part of Thanksgiving, but this year we were hoping that they that they wouldn't be as much uh that we would take a one year uh leave of absence from that because okay. of the spread of the virus and uh, to to some extent that did occur, to a large extent it didn't occur. And so now we have a surge. It's really difficult to pinpoint exactly how much of the current crisis is exactly due to Thanksgiving based on the only the data we have, but you know, we're in a pickle with the ongoing epidemic and, you know, it's kind of water over the dam in terms of whether it was Thanksgiving or not. I mean, it does matter going forward, obviously, because we have the winter holidays coming up, which, you know, again are often a chance for people to to get together across households. And based on everything we know about what's going on and based on the legitimate crisis that we have here in Southern California, I, I I would strongly encourage anyone listening to this to, to do single family holiday celebrations this year. There's a ambulance diversion order that's in effect for Orange County. Let me explain to your listeners what that means. So typically, if a hospital is you know inundated with the ICU or the emergency department is full, then they divert ambulance traffic. So for example, if uh, if Hospital A is has an emergency department is full, they'll divert ambulance traffic. Maybe hospital A is treating, uh, you know, people who from a a building fire and their emergency department is, is, is too busy to attend to other, you know, normal Mm -hmm. emergencies. They'll issue a diversion order in which case ambulances will go to the next nearest hospital instead of that hospital, because that hospital is undergoing a temporary crisis. Mm And there is an order against diversions now countywide because the hospitals are all full. Mm. So there is no point except for wasting gas and wasting time of taking someone to a different hospital because hospital B is just as full as hospital A and hospital C is just as full as hospital A and B and hospital D is just as full as hospital ABC and so on. So this is a legitimate crisis and, um, and this is going to affect now not just people who need to be hospitalized because of covid but anyone who has a stroke or an appendicitis or uh, is involved in a, a you know traumatic accident like a, a motorcycle or a car accident got you know heaven forbid so you, you know this is a, a real crisis situation and it, we don't have you know time to debate the finer points of of you know What percentage of the current surge was caused exactly by Thanksgiving and what percentage is caused by general factors? I mean, I I urge people to have Christmas not with large, you know, multi-household gatherings this year. And uh, we can have a a merrier Christmas next year if we have a more subdued one now.
1: If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeier. And my special guest today is UCI Public Health Professor and Pandemic Expert Dr. Andrew Neumer. We now discuss the challenges of COVID nineteen. Stay tuned, Professor. Why is it so difficult to pinpoint uh, where people are catching it? I I wonder myself. I you know I'm isolating. I'm I you know I take walks, but I you know socially distance. But sometimes I wonder am I really being safe enough or am I just lucky? I don't have a sense that they really know. Why is it so difficult?
0: That's an excellent question and it touches upon, you know, a lot of aspects of the epidemiology of the dynamics of the virus and and how we study those dynamics. You know, we don't have a complete readout on where every case is coming from, you know. There are ways to study this, but they're very laborious. So the virus can be sequenced and the smallest changes in the, in the viral g- genome can be detected. These are mutations, that, not mutations in the sense of causing a more virulent or less virulent form of the virus, but just small copying errors that happen when the virus replicates millions of times. And so we can study the molecular epidemiology of similarities and differences in the viral strains and, and, and get a sense of where... People are getting the virus, like if some strains in Orange County all of a sudden start looking similar to the strains in St. Louis, genomically speaking, then we can say, well, maybe someone traveled from St. Louis to Orange County. But those studies cannot be done on every case. It's just, it's, it's impossible. We would have to sequence every viral sample ever taken. And that's just not feasible. And so another thing we do is we contact trace. We ask people who they were in touch with. Mm-hmm. but a lot of people, you know, get sick with this and thank goodness that not everyone winds up in the hospital. Some people are just toughing it out at home and some people even are asymptomatic. And so we don't have complete contact tracing information. And even when we have positive cases, we have, you know, some people are, are, uh, aren't cooperative with contact tracers, unfortunately. And there's an app that people can get that works on a Bluetooth proximity uh, sensing and uh, it's, it's called CA Notify. And uh, I think everyone in California got a notice on their phone about the availability to download this. And there have been, I believe, six million at least 6 million downloads uh, of that now. So that is a way that people can try to get a sense of where they're getting it. because it, But it, it depends on people logging in and informing them when they have a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so that can help then that's something your listeners can install on their phones and they can uninstall it when this is over. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, as far as Thanksgiving and not Thanksgiving, I mean, you know, we, we are expecting more cases as we move from fall into winter. And I've, I would have to go back over the the recording, but I, I I believe I did say this already even last March when we spoke that the winter time was going to be, you know, the danger time. And right. so it would be great to to do a randomized study in which we randomly ch- choose some households to absolutely not mix at Thanksgiving and other households to uh, do Thanksgiving as they normally would. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you, you can't really do that in the real world because people mm-hmm. get some letter in the mail saying that they've been chosen to be in a study and that they've been randomized to, uh, to absolutely not do Thanksgiving as they normally would. And they're, they just sort of shrug their shoulders. And then moreover, these are community processes. So what we'd really like to do is randomize at the community level. So everyone in Tustin, you know, does what they normally do, but people in in Irvine do no Thanksgiving with with multi-household gatherings. And so you randomize at the community level because transmission is a community level process. And then you and then you do so on and so forth with other towns. And then you go forward and see what are the transmission rates like in Tustin and Irvine. But there are, again, millions of, of real world problems. In some epidemiology textbooks, this is maybe how we would study it. But where the rubber meets the road, it's also impossible to do that study. Because for one thing, you know, some of the households in Tustin were supposed to meet some of the households in Irvine. And what, uh, if they've been randomized into different groups, some of them are going to, uh, you know, what, what does that mean? And and not to mention the fact that people just won't do it and and so on. And so it's simply not possible to do like the textbook randomization studies of, you know, having Thanksgiving dinner. Mm-hmm. And so we wind up just inferring where people are getting it. The other th- the other thing is that a lot of people who un- unfortunately, you know, have gotten sick and my my heart goes out to anyone who, you know, got sick and, and who um, you know, and had severe symptoms and 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 it certainly goes out to any of your listeners who've who've lost a loved one to COVID. But I mean I, I mean some people uh at the individual level may may sort of know in their in their heart where they got it. Like they may know, well, geez, I, I started feeling sick exactly five days after Thanksgiving. And, you know, I was at the Thanksgiving table with cousin Joey who turned out to have it and and so on. But these stories don't always sort of percolate again, we don't have we epidemiologists aren't listening to everyone's smart speaker and we don't have You know all these data that people might sort of know in their heart of hearts, and and sometimes are very candid about, and other times are not very candid about. So, you know, there's just there is just a lot that we don't know. There's always a lot that we don't know. I mean, before this started, I could have told you, you know, ten things that we don't really understand about influenza. But you know, influenza kills maybe sixty thousand people a year, and it's kind of baked into the cake because it's sixty thousand people every year, and in a comparable time frame i mean we're we're really not even 12 months into the pandemic and the death toll you know as of now is is over uh, is 320,000 people so th- this is not influenza but i mean but i mean there's lots of facts about lots of infectious disease which if you drill down hard enough you find that we we don't know as much as we would like to know and the same is true here and now
1: is that true professor that the common flu is about 60,000 deaths a year.
0: 60,000 deaths uh, would be considered a bad flu year? Mm. There are different ways to count what is a flu death, but in a given uh, flu season, which is, you know, roughly October to April, we would have up to 60,000 flu deaths. Now we have very few flu deaths, you know, May through September. Mm-hmm. So in, in in any given 12-month period, we would have up to 60,000. Mm. And like I say, there there are different ways to to count, but that's sort of the upper bound on a number of flu deaths in a year. Mm. Some years are worse than others, but the worst years add up to about sixty thousand. The flu season is is as I said, October through April, and it spans a calendar year. But when you when you add in the May through September, where flu deaths are very minimal, so in any given twelve month period, not necessarily a single calendar year, you have about you know up to sixty thousand flu deaths, and and we're at for the calendar year of COVID, we're at 320,000 deaths. And there's just a few other things I should sort of add to that. And one is that, you know, so by the time we hit, let, let's say, March 1st of, of 2021, which will be like 12 full months of significant, you know, mortality from COVID, we could be at half a million. And so we're, we're talking 10 times more deaths. Mm. So, uh, So, I mean, this is a big deal. And, you know, it's 320,000 on the calendar year, but we didn't really have any COVID deaths before March 1st of last year in significant numbers. So by the time you get 12 months, it's going to be a lot. Two other things I wanted to say is that, you know, there are different ways of counting what is a flu death. You know, a lot of flu deaths get recorded as pneumonia deaths. And when you just count influenza per se, you know, it's more like 20,000 a year, but we know that some of these pneumonia deaths are actually influenza by another name. So when we look at the data and we analyze it, that's how we get the 60,000. So it's a little bit complicated in terms of reading death certificates. And the same will be true of COVID. But, you know, we do know that there are excess deaths this year. So, I mean, these are real deaths that are occurring that are, people are dying. This is not just a you know, there's more COVID deaths, but there's fewer heart disease deaths or, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, as one might say. There's a real big excess of mortality this year. We would expect about 3 million deaths in the calendar year 2020, based on the uh, number of deaths we have every year and the the slight upward trend in those deaths because boomers are getting older and because the population is getting larger, we would expect about 3 million deaths a year. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why nobody's really interested in flu in a normal year because it's 60,000 out of 3 million And people just aren't, you know, they have things to, places to go and people to see, and they don't want to hear about, you know, the minutiae of of epidemiology. Mm -hmm. But uh, now we're, this year, we're going to have, you know, at least 3,300,000 deaths in the US. So that is a 300,000 excess, that is 300,000 additional deaths that we weren't expecting in the calendar year. And so these are COVID deaths, and other deaths, you know, related to the pandemic. So it's definitely a mortality crisis, and the, and the other thing I wanted to make sure to tell your listeners is there's been a lot of talk about the case fatality rate of COVID and the, and the infection fatality rate of COVID. The case fatality rate is simply uh, deaths divided by cases, and the infection fatality rate is deaths divided by total infections, and total infections includes you know people who were asymptomatic. It's anyone who, it's deaths divided by anyone who got infected, including someone who was t- completely asymptomatic. And uh, people have pointed out that the infection fatality rate of COVID is quite low. And it is actually, those people are right. The infection fatality rate overall for COVID-19 is about one quarter of 1%, 0.0025. Hmm. And that number is going to evolve and that number is approximate and that number changes by age and, and what what have you. But that if you're uh, generally speaking, if you, if you take a random person of any, of any age, select someone at random from the population of the United States, and if they become infected with COVID, there is about a one quarter of 1% chance that they will uh, die Mm -hmm. of COVID. Mm -hmm. And uh, so people have pointed out that this number is very low and, I mean, it is quite low, and people have pointed out that this number is, is in the same ballpark as flu, and it is around in the same ballpark as flu. With flu, we think it's about uh, one-tenth of 1%. So, in fact, COVID has about 2.5 times higher uh, lethality than flu um, on an IFR, infection fatality rate, comparison basis. So, COVID is more deadly, but it's 2.5 times, but, you know, uh, these are small numbers, so it's in the, they're in the same ballpark. I mean if if you want to tell me well it's the same as flu I won't I won't agree with that but I will agree it's in the same ballpark. Mm. So so why do we care so much about it? Why why are you and I having this conversation right now? Why and the and the reason is that the infection fatality rate is not the whole story. And this is something that I really wish more people understood and that I really wish you know th- this is not only not understood it's actively misunderstood. What matters is how many people are going to get it. The reason you don't get flu every year is not that you're always washing your hands and that you're really careful and that you walk around with a mask. Because before now, a lot of us didn't focus too much on washing our hands. And certainly very few people before this calendar year wore masks in public. So that's not why you don't get flu every year. You don't get flu every year because at some point in your life, you've gotten flu. And so you have flu antibodies. And so you're less susceptible to any blue strain. Now, once every 10 years or so, a, a flu strain comes around, and, and maybe your antibodies aren't a great match to it, or, or maybe you just got unlucky, and then you get another bout of flu. But then that leaves you with yet more, you know, yet a larger cassette of influenza antibodies. So we have immune experience with influenza. And The human population is is amino naive, on the other hand, to this new coronavirus. So the amount of people who are going to get the coronavirus is much larger in a much shorter time than people who normally get flu, because we've been exposed to flu since the day we were born. So what that means is that a lot of people are going to die, because even though the infection fatality rate is not so high, a lot of people are going to get infected. And that means a lot of people are going to die and of course you know death isn't the only uh, negative outcome from this
1: oh, wow excuse me just for a moment professor well I do a guest ID if you're just joining us you're listening to UCI conversations I'm your host Kevin Bossenmeyer. and my special guest today is public health and pandemic expert professor Andrew Neumer. and we're getting the latest updates of what's happening Professor, I am in contact with a restaurant that is not shutting down. And, you know, I do have some empathy. These people, their business is at risk. Their livelihood is at risk. Food being on the table is at risk. But their big point is we've been open the whole time and nobody's caught coronavirus from this. And I'm a little shocked. I don't really know what to say. Do you have any take on that? Or is it just like, man, they're just lucky? Uh, And I'm talking about they have dining
0: indoors. Yeah, I have lots of takes on that. First of all, they are violating a public health order that is imposed by the state and by the county to keep us all safe. And they're putting their business ahead of the public health. Second of all, they don't know who has and who has not gotten infected in their establishment, apart from perhaps some of their employees, because people by the thousands are getting diagnosed with COVID every day in Orange County. And there's no way that that restaurant owner can tell me truthfully that they don't know that any of those cases weren't acquired in, in their place of business. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can say that, but it doesn't mm-hmm. make it true. Mm-hmm. But there is an important aspect of, and I do frown upon, you know, restaurants openly defying the public health orders, but there is an important aspect here that we also need to touch upon. And that is, pandemic means upon people. The demic in pandemic comes from the ancient Greek word demos, which just means people. It's people. The pandemic is all of us. It's us. The pandemic, it's not just the virus. The, it's the virus moving among people. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't come from outer space. It comes from people interacting with other people, mm-hmm. people who form a society. And it's because we form a society that we all need to, to band together and fight this and heed the public health orders. But because we all form a society, it's also important that people have their livelihoods and that we not forget about that. I mean, and I mean, the, the fiscal policy response from Washington has been very poor and people like restaurant owners need support so they can continue to pay their employees even if they're only takeout and if the fiscal policy doesn't flow through the employers it should just flow from the government to the employees directly and so we had a $1200 stimulus check in the spring and then we haven't had anything uh, since then in terms of fiscal policy so you know if a restaurant switches from normal operations to takeout only Presumably the volume of business will decline and certainly the people who work in the front of the house will be affected. You know, the greeter and the, you know, staff and the bus staff, they are surplus to requirements. If everything is just takeout only, the only people working are the kitchen staff. And and those people, you know, maybe it reduced volume because people want more than just a takeout experience. And so the volume of business goes down. Those people, a lot of, a lot of them are going to lose income and, You know, we need mechanisms to help them through these difficult times. This is a once-in-100-year public health crisis. And it's understandable, although I already said I frown upon, you know, businesses openly defying orders, I understand that people need, you know, income, and the way that waitstaff gets income is by the restaurant being open. The government isn't helping the restaurants, and the government isn't helping those people as individuals when we need help. Sacramento doesn't have the power to print money only the federal government has that and the Sacramento rainy day fund you know is not enough to make everyone whole and so i am absolutely sympathetic to people who are affected directly by the by the circumstances and this drives people to to open up it's understandable i think it's regrettable but it is understandable and i and i think it's important not to lose sight that the that the pandemic is is us and that includes people needing to continue their livelihoods, but there needs to be, you know, a federal policy response for in terms of fiscal policy to help people get through this. And, you know, then we won't have people, you know, needing to, to defy these orders, but the idea that, you know, someone can, can vouch that no one's gotten it in their restaurant when we're talking about an invisible virus that, you know, transmits through the air silently it just doesn't work that way. I mean, that that's a claim that cannot be verified. And and because it cannot be verified, I can't disprove it either. But it, 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 well, let's just leave it at that. Yeah, understood.
1: Professor, does this compare to the 1918 pandemic? Is, is it apples and oranges or is it pretty similar?
0: Well, I mean, it's similar in the magnitude of the impact it's had on society in terms of the social fabric people in some cases closing schools of course nowadays we have you know school by internet app uh and in 1918 schools would just close or not but they if they were closed they were closed so in that respect it's similar the mortality was still greater in 1918 one half of uh, of 1% of the uh US population probably died in the 1918 flu and we're nowhere near that number uh, now, you know, we're approaching one-tenth of one percent. Mm. So, you know, we're, the in terms of the overall death rate, we would have to be five times higher than, than what we are now. And even though we're still in the middle of things right now, I don't think we're going to get to five times the current number, which would be 1.5 million deaths. So in that respect, the 1918 was worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's important to Keep in mind, I mean, just from the point of view of, you know, I value facts above all else. And uh, even though I have been on the leading edge of, uh, I think, of people saying that we need to take this extremely seriously, I don't ever want to distort facts and say this is worse than 1918, because it's, it's not if, in terms of what, you know, what we know so far. And the other thing I, I would add is that 1918 influenza mortality patterns were very strange, uh, they were strange by the uh, standards of, of flu, flu outbreaks. And most of the deaths occurred in people aged uh, 20 to 50, let's say, which is unusual because those are prime adult ages. Mm-hmm. And here what we're seeing is basically an exaggeration of the typical flu mortality pattern, not the 1918 flu mortality pattern, but an exaggeration of the typical flu mortality pattern, which is people 65 and up account for most of the deaths. And uh, there is actually one unusual thing is that that infants and children who normally die of flu in quite relatively high numbers are actually don't seem to get COVID-19 very severely. So not only were there more deaths in 1918, but people who died were often in the prime of their lives. Uh, And so there are some differences with 1918. I I should, you know, add for your listeners here in Orange County, where, where I am based and where KUCI is based. Uh, 25% of all the deaths have been among people uh, under age 65. So when I say that most of the deaths are over age 65 I do mean most but I do not mean all N- nor do I mean a ma- nor do I mean a vast majority I mean I mean most. So there's no guarantee if you're under 65 that you won't uh, die of of covid and and as I've said and as many people have have constantly pointed out you know, mortality is not the only adverse outcome here. I mean, I mean, we're still finding out more about, you know, how long it takes some people to get over uh, COVID, and uh, you know, there are potentially long-term effects, and and uh, even where people recover completely, you know, they go through, you know, quite a severe syndrome in many cases of, you know, a week or more of of being laid up in in, in bed and, and and what have you, even if they're not hospitalized. So. You know, mortality isn't the only yardstick, and um, oftentimes what reaches people the most because it's what it's our, I think, mortality is our biggest fear in many cases.
1: You are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeier, and my guest is UCI public health professor Andrew Neumer, who is an expert on pandemics and COVID 19. Here we discuss the messenger RNA vaccines and what we can expect. Professor uh, on a huge huge joyous note can we talk about the vaccines which just seems to be a miracle
0: yeah i mean a lot of people are describing them as a miracle i mean one thing that you know i think is important to point out is it, it it doesn't come from the heavens it comes from you know the hard work of people in the lab and and for about 15 years people have been working on the concept of an mrna vaccine and you know they've been testing it in in animals and and so on so it's the culmination of a lot of hard work, and if, and if this pandemic had occurred three years ago, you know we probably wouldn't be far enough along mm. to be able to to actually deploy these in practice. So, you know, they're a miracle in some in, in in sort of a colloquial sense of the word, but they're really, you know, the the fruits of our hard work. In the you know, I I don't work uh in the wet lab, so to so to speak. I'm an epidemiologist who takes a population perspective, so I can't claim any credit, not even indirectly for mm. for the work that's been done. But um, the vaccines are really going to be what gets us out of this. You know, people keep proposing technological solutions to the pandemic, you know, that we'll test ourselves every morning after we uh, get out of bed. And, you know, there'll be some test gizmo and that we're going to make 300 million test gizmos and we're going to send them out to every household and and so on. And, You know, really, and other tech solutions, and really the only thing that's going to, the only magic bullet that's going to get us out of this pandemic are the the vaccines. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, there's still some questions about them. We uh, we still don't know how well they work among the elderly. We still don't know how well they work among kids. We still don't know if they're even needed among kids because kids really don't get, you know, COVID symptoms very much. And the current vaccines are approved for people 16 and up. And, you know, these are all open questions and, you know, we don't know how long they how, how long they last because, you know, they haven't been studied for that long. So there are some really, you know, potential pitfalls ahead, but, and and the other big question we, we don't know is if they block that uh, transmission or if they only prevent symptoms. So, or if it's a little bit of both, but the point is, you know, the best case scenario would be like a what we call like a sterilizing vaccine. So we're basically, we're if, once you're vaccinated, you're essentially invulnerable to infection, that the, the, the virus gets no foothold in you uh, if, if you've been uh, you know Im- successfully immunized through vaccination. So for example, the, the measles vaccine. So measles vaccine has a failure rate of, of around 7%, plus or minus, but if you're in the 93% of the majority of people who get the measles vaccine, I mean, you simply won't ever get measles. You won't become infected with measles. Mm. I mean, end of story. There are other vaccines where you can still get infected, but your symptoms are less. Mm. And so basically being vaccinated successfully, being immunized through vaccination means you convert your future, you know, date with destiny from an actual case to an asymptomatic case. And if we were all asymptomatic, you know, to begin with, then I wouldn't be on your radio show right now. I mean, it would just be a big nothing. So Mm -hmm. the point is we can convert these real cases into asymptomatic cases. You know, if the vaccine doesn't work perfectly, but still works well enough, that that will be the case. It won't block transmission, but it will uh, reduce severity. And the, the point is that these asymptomatic cases can still spread. And so people who are vaccinated can potentially still spread. The, the infection. And so, you know, once everyone is vaccinated, and, uh, you know, I realize that there's some people who, who are going to refuse, but, you know, once everyone is vaccinated, let's just say hypothetically, you know, then it doesn't really matter if, if we're still spreading it a little bit, because everyone is vaccinated. So the spreading will just cause a bunch of asymptomatic cases, and then it'll just all kind of fade away into an unpleasant memory, this pandemic. But the issue is that, you you know, it's going to take a few months before everyone is vaccinated. Even in the best case scenario, it'll take a few months. Hmm. And in in the worst case scenario, it'll take, you know, up to six months. So, I mean, in the worst case scenario, you know, you and I could be doing a follow-up show in June and, and some people still won't have been vaccinated yet. There's just too many things we don't know yet about how quickly we can vaccinate all 300 million people in the U.S. who are 16 and up or what have you. So, you know, the key is that if it's not a transmission blocking vaccine, there's going to be continual transmission, you know, during all this time while we try to roll out more and more doses and and the epidemic is going to continue to simmer during this time or, or, or not even simmer, you know, be boiling. But if it is a transmission blocking vaccine, then it will start to diminish you know as soon as we have even 10% of the population vaccinated things will start to come off the boil mm-hmm. and then when we get to 20% and 30% and 40% the temperature of the of the pandemic will continually decrease and so you know these are key questions that we still don't even know yet you know mm-hmm. even now that we're vaccinating people we don't know exactly how much protection it's going to give us at the population level but you know, I do. You know, absolutely look forward to the day when I can get mine. And give me an asymptomatic case any day over the real thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, hope we can get enough doses out to uh, enough people that that the epidemic will start to sort of come off the boil.
1: Right, professor. Can you give us a, just a brief description of what messenger RNA vaccine is?
0: Yeah, it- it's a little. Tricky to explain, depending on, you know, how much detail we explain Mm. it is. The virus has its genetic code in RNA. And the RNA contains the building instructions for the viral proteins. And so when the virus infects us, it makes millions of copies of itself. And then, you know, it it sort of enters our cell and then sort of spits out millions of IKEA assembly instruction pamphlets, Mm. you know, to the cell. Mm-hmm. And all the building blocks of life, all the proteins that make up, you know, life, any any kind of mm-hmm. cell are already present in our bodies from, you know, I mean, basically from ultimately from the food that we eat. Mm-hmm. And so the cell gets hijacked and all these uh, IKEA assembly instructions start getting followed and they, the, the cell puts together proteins it puts to make the virus and and it'll make the spike protein, it'll make the structural proteins and so on. And then it gets reassembled. And, and then into another into a new virus, and then this and and then this happens thousands and thousands and thousands of of times, and you get an infection from you know cumulatively billions of copies of the virus that are being made by hijacking our own cells, and it, and that's what causes transmission because we, we're we're emitting all these copied viruses, and it's also what causes you know the the unusual uh, the pathology of the virus because you know it's taking over our cells and our cells are no longer working for us but they're working for the virus what the vaccine does is it injects little snippets of RNA little IKEA instructions but not IKEA instructions to make a whole virus just IKEA instructions to make the spike protein and so when the virus infects our cells it makes the spike protein and makes all the other proteins and it assembles new viruses. When we get vaccinated, it makes some copies of the spike protein and then that's it. So the spike protein itself isn't uh, enough uh, to infect us. It's just uh, an incomplete protein. It's like having only the fender of a car, Mm -hmm. except um, those spike proteins are now in our bodies. And the immune system recognizes anything that's foreign and manufactures antibodies to it. So it sees those spike proteins and says, I don't recognize you as a human protein. I'm going to make an antibody. And so it makes the antibodies. And so then when we're infected for real, it sees those spike proteins of the virus. And it says, oh, I've seen you before. And I've got in my library of antibodies, I have one for you. And I'm going to neutralize you. So it's a little bit of a convoluted story to explain exactly how these mRNA vaccines work and they work a little differently than standard vaccines but that's basically an explanation of how they work. It's a very innovative process and it's not only hopeful for coronavirus but for any kind of new virus if, if there's another one in 2027 you know heaven forbid but you know we'll be able to deploy the same strategy.
1: Amazing. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, a special report edition of UCI Conversations with your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI pandemic expert and public health professor, Dr. Andrew Neumer. We now turn to how the pandemic has affected him personally. Professor, how have these last nine months been for you? Has it been overwhelming? Has it been just busy? Can you give us a personal take Yeah, on it? well,
0: I've been... Uh fortunate to be able to share my expertise with the community and nationally through people like yourself in journalism and I've spoken to some journalists who work at very widely circulated newspapers and I've been on uh, television and and radio so it's been a pleasure to share my expertise with people and to try to guide them into what is important and what's kind of chaff but at the same time it's obviously something I hoped I would never have to do in terms of, you know, it's it's a pandemic and I have spent my career studying pandemics, but, you know, my preference as well as everyone listening to this radio broadcast would be that we just have our life back in terms of doing everything that we, um, you know, used to do. I mean, I personally think that the sacrifices we're making are small enough that they're absolutely worth it in terms of the benefits to people in society who otherwise might die of the pandemic and, and the overflowing hospitals, you know, uh, in Orange County and and elsewhere, when we record this interview are evidence that we uh, need to try harder. But I I would also just prefer to be, you know, going out to uh, to basketball games and, and music concerts and, you know, whatever it is that your listeners normally do that we that we can't do this year. And so I've been, you know, grateful for the opportunity to share my expertise. But I'm saddened by the daily you know, mortality statistics and the daily infection statistics. And so that's, it's, it's definitely been, you know, a, a mixed experience and, and believe me, I'd, I'd much rather just be, you know, having a, a, a normal late autumn, a normal mm-hmm. fall um, as we head into winter. It's a few days before winter, but so, yeah, it's just been very, very mixed. I mean, and, you know, obviously mostly, mostly the latter. I mean, mostly not happy about what's happening. Gotcha. So you personally
1: haven't, do you feel like you've been at a breaking point at any point or no, you've just professionally, you've been able to, to do okay under difficult circumstances.
0: Uh, Well, I mean, I, when my, when I'm not doing research on pandemics or communicating, you know, Knowledge to to the public through journalism and mm. and what have you you know I, I teach I'm a, a faculty member at UC Irvine and I the in the in the fall quarter that's just ending this week I I taught two classes and so I'm I i have been teaching from home uh, via um uh, uh, an internet app and uh, that's suboptimal to me I mean it's it's not a question of me reaching a breaking point but I do I do enjoy sharing my knowledge with wonderful students at the University of California, Irvine. And, you know, I haven't been able to do so because I'm teaching from home. And so I haven't been able to do so as well as I would like or in a way that I'm accustomed to. I mean, I, I covered all the same material this fall that I normally cover in in the classroom. So, I, I mean, I shouldn't say I haven't had a chance to share my knowledge, but, you know, nor- it's easier to teach, I think, in a live classroom. It, it's It's the way I've Always taught. I think it's the way students are accustomed to learning, and it's easier for me to understand if they're not understanding a concept uh, if if I have some visual feedback from them that that's greater than you know the little internet apps. Uh, in that aspect of my profession, it's I wouldn't say I'm on a breaking point, but it's it's disappointing not to be able to to teach in the way that I normally teach. But as far as I mean, I I saw. numbers early on and I I sort of steeled myself for what the outcome would be if, you know, if more wasn't done about preventing things from getting out of control. So because I'm not particularly surprised by the numbers we're seeing, I think that's helped me sort of deal with them. And uh, I I did my best to, uh, you know, to encourage early on people taking this very seriously. But, you know, as we've seen Nationwide, those warnings weren't always heeded, and so it's. I mean, ultimately, you know, people in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and people at the Department of Health and Human Services and you know elsewhere in the federal government have to sort of turbocharge the the response, or or as the case may be, not. And so you know, there's only so much that one epidemiologist can do. So I've just sort of I have been expecting the numbers that we that we're seeing and. And therefore I'm not turned sideways by them because it's something that I, you know, always knew as a possibility. And I, I should, you know, encourage your readers also, or pardon me, your, your listeners. Uh, I spend so much time talking to print mm-hmm. journalists that I say readers, but your, the KUCI listeners, you know, should also bear in mind that other countries have been struggling with this. So, you know, very much has been said about the, the executive branch of the U.S. federal government and its poor response. Mm-hmm. And I will be the first to say that the federal government of the United States and in the executive branch and 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 other branches as well have have responded to this poorly. And I can point to specific mistakes that were made. But, you know, in terms of a COVID deaths per million population, you know, Belgium, Italy, uh, Spain the United Kingdom are all you know worse than the USA and you know as of this taping and so you know these are countries with public health departments just like the CDC and they don't take orders from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue so you know lots of countries are struggling with this and so it's something just to keep in mind uh, we'll have to see where the numbers stack up when this is all over i do expect the US to be a poor performer when it's all over, when the final numbers are in. And uh, I think those are the most important numbers. And so I'm not trying to minimize that, but it, it's just worth keeping in mind that it's not only the U S that has been struggling. And so, you know, there's only so much that uh, one person can get. Uh, I, 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 I try, I don't, I don't, I don't let things get me down because I know it's just something that humanity as a whole is is struggling with and uh, i don't know if that's a good answer to your your question but I, I haven't been i haven't lost sight of the sort of mission i have to to keep communicating you know the science of the pandemic as i see it to to anyone who will listen including you know your kci audience and, and many others
1: professor thank you for this extraordinary hour Uh, So often we just hear sound bites on the news and so forth. This has really been extraordinary. We thank you for spending the time with us to to just give us the detailed insights that you've given today. The the one thing, tell me if you agree with me. It seems like the huge message is social distance, social distance, social distance, and mask, mask, mask. Are we on the same page? And is there anything else to add?
0: Yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean. This is a a respiratory virus. It's spread by minuscule droplets of water that we emit when we exhale or speak. And then someone else inhales them. These minuscule droplets of water have, as small as they are, contain many copies of the virus in them because the virus is even smaller than a minuscule droplet of water. The virus is about 120 nanometers in diameter The virus is submicroscopic. And they spread from person to person when those small droplets of water can waft across the room and be inhaled by someone else or potentially land on someone else's eye Mm. and enter the respiratory tract through the tear ducts, Mm. which connect the eye to the rest of the respiratory system. And that's why if everyone masks and stays... further apart than usual from others. We will lower the temperature on this boiling pandemic. Everyone wearing a mask means that between any exhalation and our inhalation, there are two layers of, of some kind of fabric, mm. our mask and the other person's mask. Mm. And just as I said, it's hard to do these randomized experiments on having Thanksgiving dinner or not. It's also very hard to do these randomized mask experiments and a mask experiment that was done over the summer in Denmark for uh, reasons that are, you know, we don't have time left to go into, uh, isn't the perfect guide to whether or not masks work. And so, yes, we need to mask. We need to put two layers of fabric between our own respiratory tract and everyone else's respiratory tract. And that will help lower the spread of the virus and then stay further apart from people just for a few months longer so we can get this pandemic under control. So masking and social distancing, absolutely, is what we need to focus on. Professor Andrew Neumer, thank you so much. My pleasure.
1: Thank you again to UCI Public Health Professor Andrew Neumer for his time and expertise sharing all his knowledge about COVID-19. We are better informed and more prepared because of it. I will stay in contact with Dr. Neumer and have him on again when possible, especially as we navigate through this dark surge of the winter. Thank you also to Fred Kaplan, blues piano man extraordinaire, for all my program theme music from his terrific CD, Signifying. Check it out. Now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. on KUCI is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra where he and his guests look at real business problems and discuss how to successfully navigate them. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeier, encouraging you to wear your mask, socially distance, and stay home this holiday season. We need to get through this year-end cleanly, The hospitals are way too full, and we cannot have another surge on top of this one. Have a low-key celebration this year so we can have a great celebration next year. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. Ho, ho, ho. Ho, 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 ho. Ho, 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 ho. Ho, 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 ho.